0: And if Christ is in you, then there is absolutely no doubt that you can look at this world around you and know that you are in discord with this world. Listen to how he's using his illustrations, to build up to his ultimate point. The ultimate point is being alive to God means you have a preference for God and his kingdom. Being alive to sin means you have a preference for for the created realm. So listen to the words of Jesus. Why are you anxious about clothing? Why is clothing so important to you? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Why is food so important to you? Why is what's on your table so important to you? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Those who don't know your father, those who are alive to sin and dead to God, have a preference for those things. Those who are alive to sin and dead to God pursue those things. And they express that preference in their acts of trespasses and sinfulness. But the Gentiles seek after these things. Your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. And here's his conclusion. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You see how Jesus built up to that. And then his point is, that is the heart of being alive to God and dead to sin, is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Or look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 11. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So there is the, these stages of deadness to sin and, uh, and aliveness to God, right? Paul says to the, Rome, or to the Ephesians, you have been made alive to God. God's made you alive. You, you were once dead, now God's made you alive. But he says to the Romans, you must consider yourself alive to God and dead to sin. So in that sense, there, there is, there's a sense in which Jesus delivers us. The life that comes to us from God delivers us from this ultimate overall preference for earthly things, but yet there's this ongoing battle to increasingly prefer God over earthly things. We may prefer the things of God over some earthly things and not so much over other earthly things. And so we have this lifelong battle of, as Paul says, considering yourself increasingly alive to God and increasingly dead to sin. Or Psalm 34 and verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is the process of growing in our faith. This is what we've been talking about for some time now. The work of the Holy Spirit is to teach you the deeper truths of your blessings and privileges in Christ. In other words, the more that you taste of God and see of His blessings and privileges, the more that you see that He is more desirable than earthly things. And therefore, the more alive to God you become and the more dead to sin you become and the more like Christ you become. That's how sanctification works. That's how growth in Christ works, is by the Holy Spirit increasingly opening our eyes to the truths of who we are in Christ or as the psalmist put it, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we understand walking to be this metaphor. It's commonly used in scripture. And what it means is just the entirety of your life, sort of the, the way of your life, the way that your life is going. You walk in these certain ways. It's, a, it's an expression that we find all over the Bible. And we find, we, we find it's not hard to relate to because we can talk in those terms today. You know, uh, you better walk your walk or, or those who talk the talk need to walk the walk, that sort of thing. So we understand that what Paul's saying is that you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So the entire way of your life in your deadness to God, the entire way of your life was walking in these trespasses and these sins. Not just part of your life, the entirety of your life was was walking, was living out, was expressing your preference for earthly things that showed itself, that manifested itself in your committing of acts of sinful, sinfulness or transgressions. So this is this walking speaks of in the entirety of our life. But to, now take a look, just to kind of skip ahead a little bit. We're not there yet, but just to, to kind of skip ahead a little bit to verse five. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive. God made us alive together with Christ. Now take a look at verse 10. In verse 10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so you see the contrast. You see you see the comparison there. We're dead to God, alive to sin, and that produces walking in trespasses and sin. But then verse 5, we're made alive, we're made alive to God, and that results in verse 10, walking in sin good works that God prepared for us beforehand. So you see the comparison there and the progression. So this way of walking, this way of life, all of our life is in these trespasses and these sins, again, apart from God. So now let's look at the next phrase. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. So following the course of this world is how the English Standard puts it here. Not the greatest translation. I'm gonna I'm going to say, let's go a little bit more literal. Instead of following, let's use the word according or according to. That's really a a more direct, a more literal translation there. Some of your translations might have according to. So the entirety of your life, the walk of your life and your deadness to God was in trespasses and sins, according to. And the English standard has the course of this world. Now, course is... Again, not the most literal translation. I would prefer a more literal translation. Literally, the word there is age. So according to the age of this world. Now, world there is the word cosmos. Cosmos literally means structured order. The opposite of cosmos is chaos. Right. So there's chaos, but then the opposite of that is cosmos. So this ordered structure, the word cosmos in the scriptures, it shows up some uh, 186 times in the New Testament. Virtually always, it means the structured order of evil. The structured order of that which denies God, wants nothing to do with God, is opposed to God. So you were walking in the deadness, in the trespasses, in the sins, all of your life, was in accord with this, and there was this an accordance to the cosmos, this structured system of evil in the world. But it says not just the, the world, but the age of this world. So this word age is the word eon. We've seen it before. And what it means is that, that this present age, we, we live in a present age. God chose us before this age. Chapter 1 verse 4 says, We were chosen before the foundation of the world. So before this age, we were chosen. But we've always lived in this age, this present age. And the scripture tells us that this present age is categorically evil. Take a look at Galatians chapter 1. Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. The present age is always described in Scripture as being an age of evil. Remember, we talked about this recently in Daniel chapter 7, as we talked about how this world goes from beast to beast, from horn to horn, from one beastly kingdom to another. So this is this present age of evil in which we live. But we not only live in this, but we live in accordance with this. This is what Paul means in Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Same word there. Do not not be conformed to the structure of evil, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this present evil age will not last forever. It will have a definite end. Jesus speaks frequently about the end of the age. Matthew 12, 32. Matthew 13, 49. There's others listed there in in your notes there. So Jesus speaks frequently about the end of this age, but take a look with, with me, just up a few verses in verse in chapter one, beginning from verse 20. That Jesus worked in, or that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority. We'll get to that in just a moment, rule and authority, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Jesus is in a place of authority. He's in a place of rulership. The kingdom is given to him in this age and the next one. The next one will be far greater, far more visible. It won't be defied by the evilness of this age, but nonetheless, Jesus has authority and dominion in both this age and the one to come. So there's this age of the world, this present age, this present evil, and Paul says, in your deadness to God... You walked your entire life, all the aspects of your life were walked in the sins and trespasses that were in accordance with the eon, the age of this world. Now, one of the most obvious things I can say to you this morning is that we live in an evil age. And if Christ is in you, then there is absolutely no doubt That you can look at this world around you and know that you are in discord with this world. That there's a discordance. That there is a dissimilarity. That there is a square peg, round hole kind of thing between you and this world. But Paul says in your deadness to God, walking in your trespasses and sins, that wasn't the case. You were living in accordance with the age of this world. There was a connection. There was a symmetry. There was a resonance between you and the age of this world. To listen to the radio, what do you do? You take your dial and you put it on a frequency. And if that frequency matches what's being broadcast, then you hear music or you hear talk or you hear something. That's like living in accordance with this evil age. It's like the radio dial of your heart is tuned to the frequency of this world. And what this world espouses, what this world proclaims, what this world believes, you are in accord with that. Oh, well, there may be points of disagreement here or there. You may think that the world goes a little too far here or not quite far enough there, but there's a basic Agreement, an accordance between you and this evil age. This is the heart, the dead heart that Paul is describing. Are you beginning to feel the heaviness of what Paul is saying you were? All of your life was characterized by sins and transgressions, committed as an expression of your deep preference and your deep bias against God, and your deep preference for things earthly. And in that bias against God, your heart, your soul was attuned to the evil of this age, according to the course of this world, or according to the age of this world. Now next he says another according to, or in the English standard following. But let's go with according to. He says, now according to the prince of the power of the air. Now that's a difficult phrase. According to the prince of the power of the air. So first that word prince, there's a better translation and that's the word ruler. Your translation might have ruler. Prince is a little confusing and it's not It's not what Paul's getting at. So let's go with ruler. According to the ruler of the power of Now, what is the power of the air? If Paul had said power, plural, according to the powers of of the air, that would be pretty simple. If he said according to the ruler of the powers of the air, we could understand that to be that Paul is talking about this army of demonic forces, the powers that are in the very air, not literally, but metaphorically all around us. And those demonic forces have a ruler. But Paul didn't say powers. He said power, singular. So commentators struggle with this, but I think that what Paul is getting at here is power of the air. I'm going to say it is a close synonym for age of of this world. Power of the air, I believe Paul is speaking of the power of society, the power of culture, the power of peer pressure there is a power of the air metaphorically around us now there's a tangent we could go down we won't go down this tangent but, but there's a really interesting correlation to the word heavenlies you remember the word heavenlies that word that's an adjective with no noun your translation might say heavenly places but literally Paul says heavenlies there's a correlation here between i think between heavenlies and air So all the blessings are ours in Christ from the heavenlies, from the heavenly places. And there is a correspondence there to the air, which is not the blessings of Christ, but it is the power of society, the power of of living in a culture that has its frequency tuned to the age of this world. And that is a powerful force, is it not? The power of peer pressure, the power of a culture around you, the power of everybody that you encounter seemingly all day, every day, that has the frequency, the radio of their heart, so to speak, tuned to the age of this world. That's a powerful force. But Paul says that you're not in accordance so much with that. You're in accordance with the ruler of that. So there's a ruler of this power. There's a ruler of the power of society, the power of peer pressure, and we understand that ruler to be Satan. Paul doesn't say it there, but isn't it just sort of common sense? It's, it's natural to understand that Paul's talking about Satan here. But let's see specifically how he is talking about Satan. Take a look at what he says a little bit later in chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Or Ephesians 4, Verses 26 and 27, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So I think clearly Paul here, when he says the ruler, he's speaking of the devil, Satan, as the ruler of the power of the pressure of the world around you, the pressure of the society around you, the power of the air, which is indeed a pretty powerful force. But you know that is not an omnipotent power. Satan has the power of culture, but that's not omnipotent. Satan has the power to bring society down to bear against the believer who will stand against it. Think of of Hananiah, Mishai, and, and Azariah as they stood against the whole sea of people bowing to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. He has the power to bring that to bear upon you. And that is a formidable force. And the scriptures tell us that that is formidable. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the devil. So the whole world is in this blindfolded state in which they are unable to see the glory and the beauty of God. And being unable to see that, they don't react to it, but instead they have a preference for the earthly and the temporary and the lesser. And in their preference for the lesser, they express that preference in all the sins and transgressions of the world around us. And those sins and transgressions around us are what bring pressure to bear upon us as we live in a sea of swimming against the current, of walking against the tide, of of trying to walk uphill against the river that's flowing downhill. So that is indeed a formidable pressure that is brought to bear upon us. That is the power that Satan has to bear As Satan makes transgressions celebrated, common, enjoyable, easy. That's his power. His power is to make transgressions acceptable, easy, celebrated, good, fun, enjoyable. And to have all of society come and tell you so. Is that not the world that we live in? A world that tells us over and over and over and over just how fun and easy and celebrated our transgressions. That is the power that Satan is bringing to bear. Or take a look once again at Ephesians 4, verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So we give opportunity to... Obviously, we're not in chapter 4 yet, but when we get there, we're going to see that we give opportunity to the devil when our heart that is not yet completely dead to sin, still has some kind of a preference for earthly things. And in that preference, we either act upon it or we don't quell it. That's giving opportunity to, to the devil. The devil does not have opportunity when you're tempted. When a temptation comes into your heart, when a temptation pops into your mind, that's not the power of Satan. Satan does not have that power. Satan's power is in transgression. Satan's power is in sins, not in the preference. Satan's power that he he yielded, that that he wielded, I should say, in the garden was to entice, was to encourage the woman and the man to do what? To act upon a preference that they had. We talked about this this past Wednesday, this discussion that we had about Adam's unfitness for heaven even before he sinned he was he was unfit for heaven even prior to his sin so in that way Adam had a nature that was capable of preferring earthly things over God yet Satan had no power until Adam acted upon upon that and that is his power that's why Paul says don't give opportunity to, to the devil by you know you can feel anger but You will give opportunity to the devil when you either stew on that, let that rest, let that turn over, or you act upon it. That's giving opportunity to to the devil. But just to feel anger, you haven't given him opportunity yet because Satan doesn't have the power of sin. Hear that very clearly. Satan does not have the power of sin. Satan has the power of sins and transgressions, not sin. That's why he's called the accuser of the brethren. What does he accuse? He accuses of sins and transgressions. And so you yield no power to Satan until your preference for earthly things is something that you express or act upon. That's his power. And his power is either when you act upon your sins or his power is when those around you act upon their sins and the pressure of that comes to mount on you. That's the only power he has. Satan doesn't have the power to create in your heart sin itself. He only has the power to entice, to encourage, to influence you, to act upon the preference or bias that your fallen heart is experiencing. Remember Satan's temptation of Job. How did Satan want to bring Job down? Satan wanted to bring Job down by encouraging Job to act upon a preference for the earthly. Take away all these earthly blessings. Take away what Job really valued and then get him to act on that. That was Satan's game plan. Curse God and die. That Satan spoke through his wife. But what one of the things that Satan learned was that Job did not prefer earthly things as strongly as Satan thought he did. That was one of the lessons of Job. But that's how, that's how Satan tried to get Job to fall was by trying to get him to act upon a, a preference in his heart for the earthly things that he lost. That's his only power. And if you can teach that to your soul, then you've given yourself a tool in the fight for holiness. Because Satan can't create sin in your heart. He can only encourage you and entice you and bring peer pressure upon you to act upon what's already there. Satan's power is indeed extreme, as we said. John 8, verse 43 through 45. Why do you not understand what I say? Jesus says, It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. So death death to God, being dead to God, produces such a strong preference in the heart for things that are not of God that literally those who are dead to God can be said to be doing the will of the devil because their preference for those things are so strong. Take a look with John chapter 12 and verse 31. John 12 and verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So, We live in this present evil age, but into this evil age, the cross has broken in. There's been a breach in this evil age. And so this age, which is still called the age of the devil, the God of this world, there's been a breakthrough by the cross. And the cross has come into this world and entered into this world and created life in people so that their preference for things earthly is being broken And their preference for things godly has been given birth to and being grown and strengthened. And so there's this breakthrough into this world now, into this age now. So we see that this age is coming to an end. John 14 and verse 30, Jesus says, I'll no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. He has no claim on me, says Jesus. So there's this breakthrough, there's sort of a tearing of the veil, so to speak, And the darkness of this world has had light shine into it by way of the cross, by way of Jesus coming and paying for the sins of his people so that by way of their forgiveness, what now happens? Satan's power over them is taken away. Take a look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That sounds just like what Paul says to the Ephesians, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. He says to the Colossians, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. That sounds, again, like what Paul's saying to the Ephesians in verse 5. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That sounds like chapter 1, verse 17. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. He has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. When we trespass, there are legal demands against our soul because we have trespassed on a written law of God, on an unmovable, unchangeable law of God. We've trespassed that law. And so there is a debt against us. There is a hold, so to speak, against us that that debt stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus nails it to the cross because he pays for it on the cross. He pays the debt, the legal debt that was incurred by our trespasses. He pays that on the cross and he disarmed, therefore, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So how does Jesus disarm the rulers and authorities? He disarms them by forgiving our sin. And when our sin is forgiven, remember, that's the only power Satan has.